I, I call this memorable marketing just because, you know, the things you do are very memorable and you do <laughs> marketing. So that's what I thought. But what do you actually do? Like, what would you explain to the people? Well, I think that uh, someone asked, said on a post a couple of weeks ago, I wish I had your your business life. And I am at the moment, my business life is very much one that I've created myself where I do get a day a week where I can just be as creative as I want to be, which is fantastic. Uh, but the reason I do that is that I am a marketing coach. And so I, to show people how to market, I have to make sure I'm doing all that work myself. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the things I've done is opted to make sure that I do have space for my own marketing. But yeah, I'm a marketing coach for small business owners. And my whole process at the moment or focus is helping small business owners who want to be the face or know they have to be the face to sell their product or services and help them equip to create what I call a sticky content web where they're doing that on multiple platforms and multiple types of content, not just focused on blogs or not just focused on video, but putting it all together. And then stepping back and seeing how easy it is to have clients come in all the time without having to do a lot of effort because essentially it's lazy marketing once you've set it up. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> very pleasant. Yeah, or well, teaching other people to do stuff like that's that's the dream. Uh, it's I I really enjoy it because it's that light that goes on. And you know, one of the things I think for me as a teacher is watching clients have more success than me on something that I've taught them. You know, like if I go, hey, I want you to try this technique because I think it would really suit what you're doing, and then having a client say, oh my gosh, that actually went viral, it's gone crazy. When I'm like, well, damn, that didn't go viral for me. But to know that I taught them the right thing for them, because obviously I'm testing a broad range of stuff, is really, it, that's exciting for me. That that lights me up. That's the thing that makes me excited. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think um, I'm in a similar vein. Like, sales only did it because it scared me, and I want to get better at communicating. And But I realized it was a much better coach, because I was a shit salesman that learned how to be an okay one. Yeah. So I understood why, and then I could articulate that to people. So I'm always interested what leads someone down their journey. So what, where did it start? Where were you born? Where, like, you know. Oh gosh. Well, you know, I'm, I'm in, I was born in the seventies, Ryan. So it's hard to remember. Um, I, I, I think for me, I think one of the things you realize when you get to my, my decrepit age of 51, um, is that there are, you can see trails or breadcrumbs that lead you towards stuff. And I know that when I left school. I was going to teachers college because I had to get a proper qualification and I loved teaching, but I also know that I used to read at those days. The only ways you could find jobs was in the situation vacant pages in the, in the paper. And I used to read these things. There were only, there was no such thing as a marketing agency back then, but there were advertising agency jobs. And I used to read them and go, I want to, that's what I want to do. I want to do something like that. And I was so drawn to it. Did the teaching staff, wrote a whole lot of books for education, 27 books. Um, while I was doing teaching, 27. I wrote 27 books in eight years. What's your was, secret to writing a book? Uh, get up at three o'clock in the morning, write till six, then get your kids up, sort that out, put them to school, <laughs> then do your rest of your work, then like wow. put them to sleep and then write from 6 p.m. to 11 a.m. I basically didn't have any sleep for seven years, but I wrote books and I was teaching and doing freelance writing. Um, and so that's when the content writing started. I was writing in magazines, writing for corporates. Um, did a lot of content writing uh, and then moved from that into uh, working as a facilitation parenting coach and education coach across New Zealand, have my own business running around all the different regions. Um, and that was really successful, but really hard as a parent. I was a single parent and it was a really hard thing. Never saw my kids during the week because work was outside of normal work hours or on the weekends. And so I'm, I moved across into marketing training 
worked with an agents, uh, a company, and they trained me in how to sell. Uh, I also wasn't a, a natural at that, and I used to have called it panic attacks, but I had to sell to survive, <laughs> you know? And so when you're having to sell to survive, you realize that you can sell. Uh, and did that. And then uh, I was working really hard in that, doing that, a lot of facilitation, loved the facilitation. Um, and then they cut, I was being paid by a commission and they cut my commission by 25% uh, because they wanted to use that to grow the rest of their business because I was I was earning quite a chunk. And they said, look, you'll recoup it. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing it this way. And so set up my own business um, and wasn't going to do any training or facilitation because I didn't want to compete with them. And then about six months later, people started asking, hey, this is what we want you to do. So actually kind of reluctantly started doing that. Um, yeah. I didn't want, because I, I didn't want to feel like I'd kind of got, it just felt ethically weird. Uh, and then, yeah, we just started identifying. It was me, grew the business almost failed the business my husband came in we reset the business about six years ago and yes now it's just this great thing that i get to do and get to dress up like a goat or a road cone every <laughs> thursday and fall around in the studio so have a podcast podcast yeah it's great it's just the thing is with the it's funny because um for those who don't know i i do dress up yes i'm a 51 51 year old woman who has an extensive costume collection that i wear at work um and i think i was thinking about it the other day i was thinking that when you're a teenager or when you're a young adult, you have all this excitement and energy and all these things you want to do, but often you have all these other areas of self-doubt. And like, I remember being on stage with drama and just feeling so conscious that I wasn't looking the right way or feeling at ease in myself. And now I'm at ease with myself and I'm like, I want to celebrate that stuff. I couldn't quite grasp back then and play, but also I think being a teacher I want people to learn and see that it's fun because I think learning is painful when we're learning, but if we can grasp the fun aspect from it too, it makes it so much easier to get concepts. So if I do that, and if I'm a bit of a fool doing that and people think what a dick, it's okay because if they're learning at the same time, it's all right as well. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the whole game is how can you communicate in a way that fires as many neurons as possible so that it will solidify in your memory. Yeah, and I had, I've had like, I had someone on one of my videos go, oh my, you know, oh my God, what were you on on this? And I was like, honestly, this is just me having fun. Like I'm playing because also my level of play is going to be less than a client's. Like their level of play might be choosing a different lighting or maybe choosing a, a background or just standing in front of the camera and talking might be their level of play. It's just about relaxing and having fun. And I think that that to me is a really important part. But the other thing that someone asked the other day, they said, I want to see you doing this in a real tree, not a fake tree. And I was like, look, if you want to give me the tree, if you want to give me the funds for a proper setup for that, if you want to come be my cameraman, I'm in. But, you know, this is us doing it on a budget. You know, so I think I think that's also part of it is just actually showing how little you need. I don't have, like, you've got a radical setup here. I have nothing like this. I am total budget. I have budget. I do it myself just to show, look, this is what you can do and still run a growing successful business if you want to. Yeah, you just need a yeah. phone. You just need a phone. We, I use Zoom. I do have a cam. I thought a uh, microphone for my podcast now. It was a big splurge when I hit a year. Hey. Um, I know. I was very excited. Um, and I, But most of the time for cameras, I just use my phone because that's all I need. I have an expensive camera, actually, but I don't use it. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I use these setups, like if you if you can get to HD, even if it's 720p, mm. that's all you need. 
in the sense because it's going to create authenticity and connection. Mm. And it's the substance of the content that matters more than the quality of the camera. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And we were talking about that a little bit before off screen that, you know, when we're looking at videos, I have some videos that have beautiful quality in them and they've been, they've been, I've edit, I took a long time editing them. They're gorgeous. They look amazing. The lighting's just great. The background and, you know, 200, 300 views. And then I've had ones that are completely messes that I did off the cuff and they've had 65, 100,000, you know, 150,000 views. And you're like, why? <laughs> you know, why did I even bother? And you have to have that level where you're going, some of these I am going to go through and I'm going to edit and I'm going to do that for my own skill base and to learn. But actually we do overcomplicate it often um, across any content, to be honest. We over often overthink it. Yeah, I, I think you need to earn the right to understand what works. Yeah. And that comes through volume. I think quality yeah. comes through volume. And that that's the mistake I see with a lot of businesses is that they sit in a boardroom, they speculate on some stock image that's a sales pitch on the first post. And then finally it goes through six months of approval and then they post it and it gets five likes and it's some massive achievement. Yeah, I worked with a company um, a few years ago and we were doing a little bit of management for them and setting things up. And I... I wanted to work with them for a long time because it was a company I really respected, but we didn't last very long with them because we used to have like a budget of sort of like eight hours a month to do their social. And we took eight hours to get them to approve one post, which was an image they'd supplied. They asked questions about every single of the 30 hashtags we were using. They queried every single phrase. We ended up using the exact thing we started off with, but it took eight hours of back and forth. And to me, this whole idea of having to have something perfect because, oh my gosh, what if it doesn't perfect and it doesn't represent my brand? As long as you're not being extensively racist, sexist, homophobic, any of the ics or isms, you know, as long as you're not doing that, there is flexibility around making mistakes or being imperfect. And, you know, I am 51. I quite often don't wear makeup. I have, I did my hair this morning, but it already looks like I haven't done it. Um, and I, look, if I spent my whole time waiting for the perfect moment to show my face, I would literally never show my face. You know, it's just a crazy thing. Yeah, yeah. It paralysis by analysis. I think that, I think often the biggest public outcry is from inconsistency. Mm. So suddenly you're putting on this, oh, I love everybody. And next minute there's this scandal. And then, yeah. and then you avoid responsibility. And like, I envisioned me getting canceled at some point, not because of inconsistency, <laughs> just because I speak my mind too much. I think that it's okay to be fearful of, I think it's okay to, like, I do too sometimes worry about that because there will be a couple of times where I'm like, I actually have to speak on this. And I... I'm not a controversial person often. Like I feel I, people might think, wow, she never talks about issues really. I don't like, there could be big issues. And I'm just like, I'm just going to talk about what I have planned today. That is what I'm talking about. And I think there's like a balance of both of those things. But I do think that people that do those ones that are outrageous, there's still a market for that. Like I always think, I don't know what your political beliefs are, so you might love him. <laughs> but like, I always go, look, 17 million people voted for Trump in the last election. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm always like, I personally hate the guy. Yeah. But it doesn't matter what your your opinions are, as long as you're consistent, as you said, consistent in what those opinions are, and you're aware that you are filtering out people all the time. Um, I did a, I did a podcast a few months ago about uh, Thunderpans, and they de-gendered their website, which I really loved. I've got, um, you know, 
friends and family in the transgender community. And so to me, this was a really important thing to tell. I got so much hate mail. People hunted me down and sent me so much horrible hate mail. I got hate comments on Twitter. I had all this stuff, but I felt okay about it because it was something I felt really strongly that I wanted to share. And it meant that I actually got a couple of clients from it too, because they went, oh, if you have that perspective, you're my people. So every time we have a controversial opinion, we're actually allowing people to see our values and make a choice. Are you aligned with me or are you not aligned with me? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's important. I, I think, you know, um, Russell Brunson, I've sort of emerged myself in the world of click funnels of yeah. and, um, <laughs> his book is good. Dotcom secrets is good. It's a good book, it but good book. The, yeah. the attractive character, I think, you know, is not someone that's, you know, nice to everyone and, mm. you know, there's no character or mm. substance to them. It's someone that stands for what they believe in. And I, I think there's some real merit in that. And yeah. you look at pretty much every superhero or every story, there's something corrupted about the way, like Superman, when it first came out, no one related to it until, oh, he's got this kryptonite. There's this one thing that is completely out of his control. So I think it's important to deliberately screen out people that never would have been clients, but not to the extreme where you no longer have a platform to share your ideas. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. We Trump <laughs> lost his platform. It took Elon to come back. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I do think that there is that kind of line. I, it's interesting, that whole kryptonite thing, because there is this line. I have a rule that I teach my clients, which is definitely be authentic. But if you're feeling authentically, if you're truly today feeling super, super low, today is not the day to share that authenticity. Hmm. You wait till you've got, you've climbed yourself back up and then you can talk about it, but you're not doing it while the bruise is like, like the, the wound is bleeding, bleeding out. Because if you're doing it while you're bleeding out, as you're trying to heal, people are coming in and talking to you in that post because they always work, but they're hitting against that healing that's going on and you're opening up the wound again. Hmm. And so it's actually better to, to do it when you're a little bit past it, like doing it at the lowest moment is dangerous because one of two things can happen. One, the post goes unnoticed and then you feel even more alone and it takes you deeper or that thing of it just keeps on piling up and you've moved on and it's still there. So I, I teach, you know, wait 48, 24, 48 hours. Are you starting to climb up? Are you feeling safe enough that if, if those two things happened, you're robust, then you post it. It's still authentic, but you're protecting your psyche as well. Yeah, don't do it on TikTok. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you post on TikTok, they'll tear you to bits. Well, yeah, I did a post. Um, I had a day where I was just like, I can't do this. Like, it just is too hard. And so I posted it and I and I recorded it. And I said, I'm not posting this on the day I recorded it. So I said that first. And then I said, but this is how I'm feeling today. And I posted it a good three weeks later. And it uh. got so much feedback and stuff. And people went, I totally get that. But I wasn't feeling that. I can't do this today. I was past it. I wasn't feeling that way anymore. Interesting. Yeah, because because maybe I should have talked to you before. Because essentially, I just put it all out. Not, and I'm okay with the consequences mm. of it. I can understand the mental health component. Yeah. I'm actually putting it out there be, to share the journey so that yeah, other I get that. Journey. I like that too. I think for me, it's also just a thing of, I think that authenticity is really important. But what can happen too is that people love the drama. People love drama. People love it when people aren't doing great. And what happens is you start getting pulled into, oh, my engagement's dropped. I might need to just add a bit more drama in to get the engagement going. And so to me, I feel like it's just 
to me, it, it, it's hard. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous, it can be dangerous. Not you. I'm just saying for some people, it oh, could be a dangerous thing because the dopamine hit from getting a, a one of those posts. And I think authenticity doesn't, I t this is a kind of a controversial thing, I but I don't believe, it. yeah, authenticity isn't actually about being 100% honest every day. Okay. Because to me, sometimes I have, I still have clients sometimes. I'll have days where I'm feeling like I do not want to show up today. I feel like complete crap. I still have to work with a client and be professional. I can't be there and have a session with them and go, look, I'm just thinking, you know, I'm going to be subpar today because I'm feeling like crap. I've got to cup and I can't say that word, cup and mentalize. I've got to put that stuff in a box to manage and talk to those people today. So I just sometimes go, look, it's okay to do that in a social media setting too. You can put that in a box and do this thing today and talk about it. And then when you're ready to, you can open that box and share it. That's still being authentic because just being a professional, there's like a gap between those two things. Yeah, I think, you know, there, there, there's definitely benefit of being mindful of mm. who you share what with yeah. because they can hurt you. Yeah. Um, and then also, what do you think about if you shared that authentically sooner in the day, would the day not change? Oh yeah, but I, so the other thing is, and this is my, this is my other thing about this. I'm going to be very unpopular. You're, you're off or you're in well, safe hands. I had this big thing about it. I used to be on Twitter a lot and Twitter was my therapy. Um, I had the most tweets on Twitter of any New Zealander. It was me and Wendy Wing. She's faster past me now. Um, but we were like neck and neck. What were you most, pumping out? Like, oh, I, I think one day I think I did 30, oh, I, uh, thousands of tweets in a day. It was my birthday and I was replying to everyone's tweets. It was like crazy. Like it was just thousands of tweets in a day. Yeah. But I was, I was like sitting at that sort of 120 K tweets. Um, and I was, I was like busy and I was on there and it was my secure, it was my security blanket. It was my social thing. And what I realized was, is that those people on that level, even though I make friends in real life, it's, it's not the same as actually connecting with a real person offline. And so one of the things that I did when I chose to leave Twitter is I started going, you know what, I actually just need three or four really good friends in my life mm -hmm. that I can talk to, that I know I can go, hey, can I check this in with you or can I do that? And it took a while to get that. But my personal thing is, is if the shit is really bad, I want to talk about that in real life with somebody. And it's harder if you're single, if you don't have a partner. I'm really lucky I've got a really amazing husband that I can talk about that stuff with. But I've also got three or four different friends I'd do that with. And actually my coaching group, even though they're my clients, because we meet every time, there's a level of trust in that group where I'm able to be a bit open about things as well in there because often it helps them as well if we're talking. But to me, I, I am unlikely to seek that from a social media platform. Yeah. I think social media, as someone who's old and has grown up without it and after it and who embraced everything, I was an early adopter, I embraced everything social media has um, to offer. I loved it. It's why I work in social media and digital marketing. But I believe that one of the most destructive things social media has done has stopped us actually relying on people in real life as much as we should. Okay. And it's broken down some of those really important social structures that we should still have and it's a good tool and it's really important but if we're jumping onto social media to fix that stuff to feel that sense of community there's something that's lost in us that we should be trying to get back yeah i think pretty much any problem you have in life can be solved by another person yeah one person or not one person just one person the whole thing but 
You know, I'm not stacking the, on them. Yeah, stacking on them. Stacking on them. Yeah. What do you think of this? Blah, blah, blah. I love that I've got. I've got, I've got a 22 year old, a 19 year old, and a 17 year old. I love my 22 year old. If she's having an issue, I'm one of the people she calls. That's cool. You know, and I like that. There's that relationship. I've worked really hard to cultivate proper relationships with people because I was the friend of hundreds but had no one I could trust to talk to about something I'd have to go and do on social media. And now I've got, I'm a probably a friend of a very small number of people, but I feel I have, you know, I just, my life is not being played out on social media anymore. My life is very much a life that is not being documented every second on social. Yeah. And to me, that's a very freeing thing. Oh, like I wouldn't have social. If no, I, think I know. A business. Yeah, I, to me, social for me is a business tool. Um, and it has put me in amazing connections with people from all over the world. I love connecting with other marketers and other people in my industry from all over the world. Uh, you know, getting invited to speak at events or on podcasts with people that I would never have met. You know, like it's an awesome <laughs> experience. I know, exactly. You're like, we talked about this in networking events, right? Like networking events is like this freaky, scary thing. And social allows us to network online in our own terms and jump on and off. Like, and I think that's powerful. Um, but yeah, it is, it's just a, such an interesting thing because I do, I've watched, I watch a lot when I'm watching, talking people, there is this thing, there's this dangerous thing with authenticity where we need to share how hard things are. But if we're constantly sharing that stuff, then are people starting to work with us because they think, oh, this person's going to take me and I'm a difficult person, but they're going to take me because they sound pretty desperate right now. Um, I, I, one of my biggest posts um, a few years ago was a story from when I was uh, pregnant with my third child. So a long time ago, my husband was out of work. We had no money and I had to send out an email to every single person I knew and said, we're desperate. I will work. We will do any sort of work. I just need to feed my family. And, um, Someone came back and said, you can wash our windows. And my husband wouldn't go and do it because he felt it was below, below him. So here, I was seven months pregnant. I had to take the kids with me because he wouldn't look after them. Marriage didn't last. Yeah. So I, I washed these windows, seven months pregnant. And I remember they weren't in the house and I spent the whole time crying. because I was like, this is the lowest point of my life. Yeah. I told that story and I had so many offers of work because people didn't read the bloody thing properly and thought that I was currently seven months pregnant. <laughs> And they're like, you know, and, and, but some of those people were difficult clients and they're hitting, they think, thinking, here's this person and they, but they're, they're attracted to the pain. And I don't want customers who are attracted to pain. I want customers that are attracted to hope and success and moving things forward because they are the best customers for me. Yeah. That, that, that's the tricky thing. It's like, you know, people that established often hear that, oh, that's my biggest regret. Mm -hmm. uh, I got clients that I shouldn't have. Yeah, I've definitely taken on clients I shouldn't have taken on. <laughs> yeah. And it's always been, so one of the things that we talk about quite a lot is, as you know, I mentioned to you before earlier, that we've kind of pivoted into, I'm doing a lot more group coaching. To do that, there's been a cost in terms of time of how much one-to-one -one I can get. And at the moment, one-to-one's much more profitable for us as a business, but I can't do as much of it because I want to build up the group. And we talk about it because I, I don't like not contributing as much to our income as I have in the past. And I don't like that. And I love that Rod's always like, this is the long game. You know, we know that this is the path that's the best path, path for us. I am not, I have not started going, well, I'll take anyone as a strategy client. I'm still like, I have to check, do they fit our values? Are we going to be able to make an impact with this person? Are they someone that I really want to work with? And I still will say no to someone 
because even though it'd be great to kind of get that extra income, I'm not working with someone that doesn't fit our values. And I think from a sales perspective, treating it like you're the buyer. Yes. Sounds a little bit pretentious, but it's it is. True, I agree. Yeah. I always say it's like being on a date. Like a sales relationship, a sales meeting is a date. You both have to decide you like each other on both sides of the table. And if you're sitting there going, oh, there's a few red flags happening here, you shouldn't go on the second date. Yeah. You know, so it's Preach. the same. Preach. Well, yeah. What's I wrote a book on dating, so I'm quite well with you. Oh, yeah. Hey, I'm back all 20 soon. Whoops. <laughs> that, yeah, I did that book. I, I did go on many dates. Did you? Why, how many? Gosh. Like, can you disclose? Or do you... Uh, I lost track. The book was called 88 Dates, but that was named after a, a guy. It was a friend of mine, Matt, so he was very annoyed that I had done this, where I named it because he said he'd been on 88 Dates in 90 days. And I was like, that's a great name for a book. But my peak day was going on three dates in a day. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. breakfast, lunch, dinner. So that was like a really good, but I was dating a lot, a lot for the book. And also because I was single and having a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it's really touche. Yeah. Well, I lived in a hippie community for. Did you not the not the Centre Point one? I was in Byron Bay. Oh, did you? That's it, so interesting. Yeah, the Arts Factory in a tent. That's yeah. amazing. When you're a kid. No, no. When I was a young adult, single. Oh, I love that. That is so cool. Yeah. But uh. <laughs> I love that you're doing that, and now we're doing this podcast surrounded by incredible art and beautiful camera equipment in the middle of town, like complete. But no, well, piles of expensive shit. So yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. But, but what a just juxtaposition, right? Yeah. How easy is that? Well, it was a bit of a mental origami to f not see money as evil anymore. Yeah, I think I was I was brought up with um hippie parents, and I find well they're not uh, they're boomers, they're not that hippie mm. <laughs> businesses, but they were. Yeah, I grew up with them thinking they were hippies, but I I do think for me that was a big thing too because my family were like ministers and teachers and nurses you know and so for me to go and do business was like what do you mean your goal is back then it was like I said I said to mum once oh I earned five thousand dollars today because I ran two events and mum was like that's disgusting yeah like, what are you gonna do with all that money I'm like well I'm gonna spend it <laughs> it's mad eh? yeah like you, you slowly start to realize that they're just money numbers on a screen mm. like it's, it's quite strange you know people the challenge is like so I would do a thing where I'd ask people how much whatever I was selling was. Yeah. And their upbringing around and their associations with money and their point of life will determine as well as their perceived value of that good. And it's crazy the numbers I would say, you know, like 80 grand, 90 grand. And all it had been is the fact that you showed a clear path to achieve their goals mm -hmm. and then they added value to it. But let, let's get into it because, you know, 27 books is quite the achievement. One of them on dating. And you're so committed that you went on these dates. I I'm big on research. Research, yeah. So, so what have you learned in terms of like archetyping or creating a blog that captures people's attention or a book, either a framework that helps you write? Like yeah. me, I would just write six pages a day. And if it was garbage, it was garbage and just keep doing that every day. So I, I actually, I had a book come out this year called Be Inspired to Build a Web. I'll give you a copy actually. I'll, I'll oh, give yeah. you a copy. Um, but it's all around how to create a sticky content web for small businesses. So it's a, it's essentially, it's a small business book. Uh, and that one took me a lot longer to write because I wasn't writing it at 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> um, and I was writing it around other things. Um, and it, it started off in a couple of different ways. But I wrote that book the same way as I wrote all the other ones. I I create a framework where I kind of work out, I have an idea, and then I have to see if it's going to fit the whole, uh, big enough to be a book. 
And it's the same with a blog. I do the same thing. I'll have points. I have a system that I teach in that book, which is called The List of Ten, where we create a content strategy plan with the different niches and, and areas that you're going to talk on. And then essentially you write a list of 10 points per one of those those topics. And then you can use that list of 10 as 10 points in a blog. It makes it really easy. And so if you had a book, you would just have a whole lot of that in your book. It makes it really easy. It gives structure. And I need, I've got ADHD uh, and I'm easily distracted. So structure really helps me do that. And, and essentially that's how I would write. Uh, that's how I would write if I was starting out. Now that I've written a lot, uh, my my brain actually drafts it in my head, and but I can't see it until I start typing. And as I type, I will suddenly know. And if I, if it's not flowing out for me, I know I haven't got the story that I'm trying to start tell right. I haven't got it sorted. And so what I'll do then is I'll, I'll take a break out and maybe go for a walk and think, why am I not conveying this? What am I missing that I'm meant to be saying right now? And I'll, I'll work it through and I'll find it. But it, it, it's like it pours out for me now. It doesn't, I'm not planning it. But it's kind of what you were saying before around fluency, creating constant content. I, I post pretty much every Monday to Friday on LinkedIn. I've been doing that for years. And I don't, I have a set framework, oh, yeah. but I don't have a set topic every day. Huh. And so I know that, you know, on Tuesdays I share, I haven't done it yet, but I share a video. And so I pick one out so I know what it is the day before, so I know which video I'm going to use. But I don't know what I'm going to write about that video yet. But once I start writing, it will, it will just happen. And I think that for me, that fluency doesn't come until you've used a structure and a format, and then you've practiced under that format enough to be able to cheat it. Yeah, I, I agree. I, like if I, like basketball's an analogy, well, a sport that I love, understanding the fundamentals allows you to be creative with the sport. Yeah, you have to uh, you have to start with the fundamentals. And to be honest, as a coach, that was my biggest problem because one of the things that makes me, I, I believe, a good coach when it comes to video is I'm still learning. I'm, I am more confident and I'm far ahead of what I was, but I made sure I documented my learning as I was doing it and trying things because when I was teaching writing for about three or four years, I couldn't teach it because I'm, I'm fluent. I've, I've written all those books. I write a column for stuff yeah. every week. I write a blog on top of that and a newsletter and I write posts every day. Like I write all the time. Trying to deconstruct how I write that is really hard. So I had to go, I had to go and get, I bought a course on how to write captions. I bought a course on how to write blogs and then I went, oh, this is crap. Or, oh yeah. And I put together and then used that to break down how I was, how I, how I would teach it. And now what I teach is, is quite far removed from those things. Yeah. But I needed to be reminded what beginners do to teach it. Makes sense. So on that then, what what would you teach? Like, you know, essentially, it, I always get some resistance from some people. Like, I try just to tell everything I know. Oh, no, I tell anything. Okay, perfect. Ask me, ask me a specific question and I'll tell okay. I, I have no, there are no secrets of what I teach. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, video. Let's start with video. Okay. So you want to make a video, you're in that service industry because that's the people you help. Yes. What, what do you think about, or how do you set the scene first? How do you feel comfortable to start expressing yourself on video? Okay. And then how do you start the video? So there are three blocks most of the time for video. One is mindset. So we have to sort out the mindset stuff. And for me, that is one, recognizing that all learning is painful and you're going to get frustrated and you have to learn to go past the frustration. And most people stop because they think, because the brain actually tells us, this is what I learned from behavior, from being a, an early childhood, 
the brain actually tells you you're going to die. So your brain's actually preparing for de death. That's that panic stuff. So you need to know that if once you get over that, it feels better and it's easier the next time. So prepare for pain, prepare for discomfort, but also learn to play. Kids learn a lot more than us because they play. They don't have expectations around perfection. So that's the first thing. The second thing is content. So I have a content plan that we work with and then that gives them this liberty. And then the third thing is, is that you need to have a structure. So one of the things that I give my clients is we have these, all these hook cards. So they know they can just pick a hook and they can use that to start things off because the hook is really important in video when it's a short video. Um, but one of my top tips that I've been using is we write a caption using the hook, then what I call the juicy content. And then if they want to have a call to action, they have that afterwards. And we have a structure to teach them how to do that. And what I teach them is let's start with actually writing a script. We're not going to read it. We don't want to read it. We're going to write a script. And one of the other issues they have is that technical side. They don't know how to deal with the technical changes. So I teach them how to use CapCut, which is the one I use on my phone. It's free, simple to use. So we play with it and I show them how easy it is to use it. And and so when we video, this is a new thing for me, is I say we're going to hit record and we're not going to stop recording. No matter what you do, we won't stop recording. And you're just going to read uh, read what the first line is so it might be something like here's three things that you need to know about content strategy and so you just have to remember that you know and just I want you to talk to me I'm going to stand next to you look at you and you're going to talk to me and just say here's three things that you need to know about content strategy so it's nice and comfortable and easy and then I want you to read your thing read the next line and then come back and deliver that and then I want you to do all of it and then we're just going to edit it and take out all the funny bits and pieces and stuff like that and they suddenly go, oh my gosh, I was so natural. Mm. Because they're not having to read something like this in front of them. They are relaxed. They're testing and playing. If they mess up, if they go, here's three things that, oh no, you go, cool, let's just take a breath. Let's do, we're not turning it on and off. Just going to keep rolling. And to me, that has, I did this this week with a bunch of people or last week with a bunch of people in Whangarei. And as I said to you, one of them was in her 70s. They were just naturals. They was completely relaxed. They could not believe how relaxed they felt in front of the camera. Yeah, it all makes sense to me. Um, thanks, Daniel. This says love your work. Just oh. to acknowledge them. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it makes, like, the whole reason I started the marketing company is just to build a team so that I can help reach more people. Yeah, I love that. Going, right? So, the psychology component is interesting to me. So, one hand, you're not stopping and starting. So, you know, you're, yeah. you're creating um, free associations. Yeah. You start talking. And the other thing is they're not talking, they have something to focus on externally, which yeah. is you. So it doesn't contribute to their negative yeah. thought. So let's talk about, okay, framework. So you, you had the service person and you're, you're going to make this content plan. Yes. How do you know what the fuck you're going to do and what? Yeah. So this is the, the cool thing with it is I teach to, you know, you really need to understand who your customers. I talk about narrowing the arrow. That's the hardest stuff is knowing who your customers and knowing what you're going to focus on. Okay. And I really struggle with this. Like it's so much easier to tell someone else what their plan is and they go, oh yeah, that's right. Then working out yourself. Um, I really struggle with this because I, you know, for a long time I was focusing on just doing one-to-one -one strategies. I feel so much more liberated now that I, I'm a marketing coach focused on content marketing because it's narrowed my offer down yeah. of what I do. And it's also the majority of people I work with are over the age of 40 because I'm older, so I'm not going to be attractive to work with 25-year-olds. With it's just a reality. 
but also because they're like, cool, this this over 40-year-old woman is not going to freak me out by making me dance to um, Lizzo. I, I might. You, you know, might, yeah, road but, cones. But, but yeah, I'm road cones, you know. Um, but but I'm not going to make them do that. So they feel at ease. And and I think that's important. And a lot of the people I work with are women because our generation were told, don't stand out, don't show out. And I talk about that and they reflect to that. So I know that that's who I talk to. I don't say anywhere on my LinkedIn profile or anywhere else, I work with 40 plus women. This is one of my yeah. bugbears. Okay. You shouldn't have to say that on your LinkedIn profile or anywhere. It should be that you're content you're focusing on your ideal client every time you post mm. and so because of that those people are automatically attracted to it and when i say that on linkedin too i believe that 20 percent of our content on linkedin should be towards people who are in our industry they're not actually people that are ideal clients because when you have your industry talking to you you're also capturing their audience because if they're commenting their people see your content mm. so you need a blend but I, so we start with, you really need to narrow your offer, narrow your audience, which is the hardest bit. And people skim over it because it's unpleasant. And then you've got to really define what that real niche of the thing, when it boils down to what is everything you're going to talk about actually about. And so that would be this, whatever that thing is. And then under there, you'd break that up into three different sections. And that can really depend on the type of person you are. It might be the how, the what, the why. It might be your three core demographics. It might be the three key things that you sell. Uh, who knows? And then under that, you'd break those down into four, again, like into four subsections. And then each one of those becomes a list of 10. You end up with 12 lists of 10, 120 pieces of optional content that you could do as posts just on the single points of content that are all related to your niche. But then you could also do three from one of those lists or five or seven or nine or 10. Yeah. And then it becomes everything you do is content that you're using and sharing. As I shared in the book, Be a Spider, Build a Web, but it's just such an easy way to stay on track um, and you're liberated. And what's interesting as you do it, you start discovering that there are like three or four of those that bring the customers in consistently. And there's other ones where it doesn't so much, but might in introduce yourself to a wider audience, how people filter through and become closer to what I call the decision hub, which is where people buy. It's interesting because I've been toying with the idea of having content that has more mass appeal, but then the website is what filters them and it just, it just would put more eyeballs in front of it. But then yeah. what does, is there a problem with that in terms of like, um, as you say, that leads to positive outcomes because you're speaking to their very specific aim. So when I talk about the blend of types of content you should have, there's yeah. uh, four, there's actually five stages that you need to think about. There's what I call the notice stage, which is that reach stage where that is the mass content. Yeah. Then you've got the connected stage. Those are people who have chosen to follow you. And for that, we do lots more how-to stuff and how you do these and things like that. That's that kind of like tips and ideas. Then we have the, um, so we've got the connected. Then we have the motivated, the people that are wanting to like actually hang out with you and be closer to you. And so those people that kind of starting to consider, maybe I'd like to work with this person. Mm -hmm. So we do content for them as well. That reach one's around 30% and that motivated one is also around 30% of content. So that's kind of the two bigger, biggest ones we do. And that stuff like you've been doing a bit more like, hey, here's my journey, that sort of thing. That's the sort of content that you'd put at that stage. That's because they're starting to go, oh, I like the way that person's talking. I feel like I can connect with that. Yet when they're starting to get an emotional connection, they're coming quite close to us. 
And then we have the stage that I call the yours stage, which is when people are showing buying signals. That's when people would go, oh, I really need this or things like that. And you can move them into DMs. And and so because what we're wanting to do is, you know, our, our websites, most websites will only convert at a sort of a 3% rate. But we can really increase that rate if most people are pretty much already sold on getting in contact with us yeah. by the time they hit the website. So you need that. And then the last one, which is super important, which most marketers forget and nearly all business owners forget, is the community one. That's the people who have either already worked with you and or people who have paid you with an email. Russell Brunson, you know, like paid you with an email or paid small amounts of money at some point because if they've paid you an email or some money, you know that they've got skin in the game. And so one of the surprising things that my coaching clients find is that we put a lot of emphasis on Look, if you don't post for three weeks because we're sorting this out, it's totally fine. But I really need you to sort out your email content because your email community is the most important community you've got. They're the ones that have chosen to be with you. They're the mm. ones that have already said that they are connected to you so close. They've either worked with you before and could become yours again, or they're very close to becoming yours. Um, and so we that's the kind of stages that you work on. And so it's a balance. It shouldn't just be for the mass. It should be, there should be, uh, you know, if you look at a web, the reason I use a web instead of a funnel is that my issue with funnels is there's this idea that they kind of all fall in the top and then they slide out and a few pop out the end and it's like magic, you know. And that is how it feels a lot, I think, anyway, when you've got funnels because it is kind of a magical process, you know, like in terms of sales. I literally will have people who go, I'm making an appointment with you because I'm working with you. I'm like, do you want to know how much it costs? No, I don't. I just want to work with you. And I'm like, are you sure? Yeah. Should I tell you how much it costs? Yeah, go ahead. Just invoice me. Like that's literally been, I have a lot of those sales calls. Um, that's easy selling. Yeah, it's not even selling, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's from content marketing. But what I say is imagine instead of a funnel having this big spider's web with no scary spider on it ahead of you. And if you pulled the middle of that down, that spider's web, it would look like a funnel. But the radius lines are all your different types of content platforms. And then the capture spiral, which is what they call it, which I think is really clever. Spiders, well, spiders don't call it, but scientists do. But down there, it's like this sticky little walkway to you that's going across all the different radius lines. So people go, might go, oh, Instagram to LinkedIn to email, back to Instagram or whatever. And they're slowly making their way down to the decision hub, which is where you sit there waiting for them. And so to me, that... It pictures it easier for me. It's, to me, it's, it makes an easier idea than this magical funnel where people just slide in and pop out, you know. Yeah, no, fair. Well, yeah. we've got a question for you. Yes. Daniel, again, um, what is marketing and what is it not? Because it seems like it involves everything. Marketing, well, that's interesting because I do, with the marketing strategies, I do include a lot of things in there. I include financial finances, like are we profitable? Because that is part of it. If you're not selling a profitable service, it's a problem. I do include customer service in there because customer service is part of marketing. Because if you have shitty customer service somewhere, you're not going to go anywhere. I talk about environment. Um, you know, if if your office space is cluttered or things like that, and you've got people coming in, what sort of, what is it presenting? We both have a cluttered office, so I know that you and I, I'm not judging you on it. Um, but, but, that, it present, but it presents a different, it presents a picture, right? Yeah. Um, and so... You know, all those things actually do count up to marketing. But so I do think that mark, people often undervalue the service space of their business and don't see how much impact it has on marketing. And often when people say to me, oh, I've, I've built a, we have a lot of people who've built a successful business without digital marketing. And they're like, I haven't done any marketing. I'm like, okay, but tell me about your customer service. And they're like, well, we do this and this. I'm like, well, that's part of the marketing. 
you know, if you've got good word of mouth marketing, mm. that's because you've had good customer service. So it is part of that process. Looking at service and systems can help that. Uh, but I would I would say marketing is anything that that shows who you are and your values and what you offer to the people that they want to be that you want to have as your customers. Okay. So it is broad. It's pretty broad. And yeah. sales comes into marketing. Sales people don't like that, but sales is actually a subset of marketing. Yeah, I think marketing is just good sales. It is. Well, it sales to me, marketing to me is if you can do 90% of your selling to the masses so that when the people that are ready to buy come to you, isn't that easier than having to cold call a whole lot of people and build <laughs> three or four meetings and go to networking events? You know, like it's so much easier if you can talk to a large group of people and then let that filter through to the right people. Well, speaking of networking events, it's 9.15. Yeah, <laughs> I've got one. You've got to go to one. I yeah. do. So uh, closing remarks, are there a, a point that you would like people to take away from this and also how they find you? Well, I think you should buy Be a Spider Builder Web by Rachel Claver. You can come and Google it and find it. Um, so it's a very good book uh, and it's a really good way to, to get my thinking and stuff like that. Um, and then it's got good sayings like you've never killed a man with your face in there or it's okay to be a heffalump marketer. Um, so it's got a few things like that. But um, And it's got a few dating stories in there too because, you know, uh, but yeah, if people want to get me, um, I'm Rachel Claver, K-L-A-V-R.com, um, E-R.com, um, or identifymarketing.co.nz. And I guess for me, the thing I'd say to you is I'm going to 100% agree with Ryan. Consistency will be, beat sporadic excellence over and over again. Be consistent, even if you're consistently shit. Yeah. We'll get better. Yeah, I'm good at that. Yeah. But it's better. You are not consistently <laughs> shit. But you know, like it's better to be consistently average than to be sporadically brilliant. And that'll oh. be my final comment. I like that. Let's just eat a bit slick on that. Thanks for coming. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thank you.